hit record. I am recording now so that you're aware. We are in the midst of a recording session. So anything that you say uh, is going to be documented into the uh, digital stream here. The void transcriber. Yes, uh, transcribing the void into electronic signals uh, for posterity. That's what we do, and that's what we're doing. So that's good. Uh, do you guys want to introduce yourself just real quick? I know that um, you know we all know each other here now, but in terms of uh, some sort of uh, proper etiquette, perhaps, I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah, go ahead and feel free to uh, introduce yourself and maybe talk a little bit about what you do or why you're interested in, in even having a conversation today. Um, not not being on mute, I'll just jump in and go first. Uh, so my name's uh, Luke Montori. I am uh, I'm a psychometrician by trade. Um, so I make uh, psychometric assessments, uh, psychometric assessments within uh, games. What um, are closely affiliated with games. Um, and I also do some consulting work in developing developing surveys and uh, uh, and helping other people create their own tasks that uh, essentially measure measure features of, of, of human human dispositions and, and abilities and characteristics and things like that. And uh, I guess I'm I guess I'm here I'm here today uh, because. I share this interest that you have, or at least I, I watched your documentary um, on uh, on the World Fair exhibition in Chicago, and uh, I was fascinated. And, uh, and it just left me left me with lots of questions. So I'm really looking forward to talking a little bit about what that what that thing was, because it just seems like something we don't really do as much anymore. It seems, a lot, it seems like something that was a lot bigger. Um, than anything we do these days. Yeah. I, I agree with you on all those points about why don't we do that anymore. Uh, my name is Mike Buckley. Um, I live in Philadelphia. I'm an architect. Um, practicing architecture gets me to do stuff that will help me pay bills, but um, there is not really too many shops or offices out there where we can design things that you would have seen at like the Chicago's um, Columbian Exposition. Um, a lot of that is really since World War II, there hasn't been much of that made except for specific restorations and recreations of the past. Um, so I think there's, there's some phrase or saying out there where people say that the future was so much better in the past. Um, and I think that kind of, uh, that captures probably the sentiment that maybe all of us feel uh, as we see you know, that great documentary about the Colombian exposition back then. And I mean, it, it happened so long ago, um, but there is still good documentation. And so it, it kind of, it's almost like this inert thing in the past that hopefully with enough energy pushed on it, maybe it can be Frankenstein back to life. We'll see. I like that line of thinking and I appreciate uh, the both of your kind words. Obviously as the person behind the documentary, it's always nice to have my ass kissed <laughs> in general. I'm kidding. Um, 
you know, the thing about putting together something like that is just looking around, seeing what's available, seeing what you can work with, and then trying to flesh out some kind of narrative that connects with yourself first. And then hopefully other people are able to dial into resonant aspects of that. And, you know, that would be maybe where I would start with the conversation as we now know your backgrounds. We know perhaps even the trajectory of this conversation in general. You know, what are the things that jumped out at you uh, during the documentary or uh, about that event? Maybe you've done some other research, you've found some things, you've looked at stuff, you've learned, you've connected dots. Uh, what are the important themes or notions you've extracted from your your time looking into the topic so i'm making huge assumptions going first here so i apologize it's a free conversation (laughs) um i think looking at the document so i mean i've watched it and knowing that we would talk about it i made sure to keep notes of all the little little bits and pieces that that Sort of pulled on pulled on something inside of me, um, and there were, there were two categories really of things that I found interesting: the small facts, um, little things like the fire the fire management protocols, um, but then also strange facts like FDR built the chimney on the. I think it was FDR. No, um, Teddy. Built, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt. Sorry. Yeah. Um, built the chimney of the of the cabin on the island, and then you know the Liberty Bell March uh, was created for the event. And that's a sort of a you know, living in the UK and for being a long time Monty Python fan, yes. that's something that I, uh, I, you know, I was very familiar with. But uh, it was quite a surprise, quite a coincidence to to have it come up here. Um, and so all those little the smattering of factoids and. and I found that really interesting and just seeing sort of historical figures placed in a, in an environment that was much more uh, relatable. Uh, there are a bunch of scientists. Uh, I can't remember which ones, but maybe Edison. Is that, was Edison there? Edison. Point? Yeah. Oh, no. Did have a presence in regards to the electricity. So he was bidding on lighting up the fair. He lost out to Tesla and Westinghouse. Um, There's a great movie called uh, The Current War with Benedict Cumberbatch's Edison. Uh, I don't remember the guy that plays Tesla, but he's very good as well. Highly recommend that movie. I've talked about it in the past as as well, too. So, um, you know, I don't want to go too far down that particular. But I would say that if you want to see a well-produced kind of fictionalized version of their competition, uh, in business and particularly focused on lighting up the Colombian exposition. They did a great job in that movie. I'll oh, well, check it out. Sounds great. Um, and the, I think the reason that, that that particular sort of fact stood out was because it made it much more relatable. Like these are people with a historical figures that I'm familiar with who were all at this kind of event uh, that I can really picture myself at or picture you know, being in the modern age to some extent. Um, but those are, so those are the small, small things. But the other category of things that I found interesting were, uh, the ways in which you spoke and the ways in which the exhibition itself, uh, related to sort of themes like identity and the relationship between, um, creation 
and identity uh, design choice and identity and, and, and national identity um, and the attitudes that people seem to have, like they went to sort of celebrate or um, um, celebrate celebrating creativity. I think was something that was said at some point. Um, and all of those themes I found to be the ones that resonated with me when I watched it. So, yeah. Um, that kind of thing has sparked up a recent um, thought and memory I had. I went and saw the latest Spider-Man movie. Um, and in it, it's this whole like comic book world. So when you see the... Uh, Statue of Liberty, it's been modified and it has, I guess it's Captain America's shield, like kind of added onto it. Um, and it, it kind of got me thinking like, do countries gift monuments to each other anymore? And, and if they don't, why? Uh, and something that sort of connects this maybe back to just the idea of expositions in general, um, there wasn't a digital space where Apple could just talk to you about their new products. Um, and just you know, blast it out on a broadcast. So people had to meet together and build things for like a long time and almost like celebrate in physical space these potentially you know new technologies that are, are really going to shape the world. Their um, their kids will inhabit and their grandkids. Um, and I guess we've probably all started to feel like we've rushed into the digital world because um, there's no choice but to do it. Um, but there's, there's things we've left behind. Um, I think that a lot of these, like the stories and sort of the, the almost like handmade quality that the real world has, uh, it seems like that hasn't yet translated into the digital world. I'm hoping there's, you know, let's say like a little digital renaissance where um, we find ways to make it more personal um, and not as uh, just bitty it seems very bitty in the digital world right now and like pixel art is like the biggest thing uh in some spaces too um so i'm interested to like see and think about what can we do to get more texture uh in our lives uh, one of my gripes just on, on the architectural front is most new things that get built whether they're very cool looking or not they have these very long flat surfaces um, whether it's glass or metal generally. And when you see the, all the structures, which were temporary structures for the Columbian exposition, I mean, you, all you get to see are exquisite details wherever you turn. I mean, your eye is kind of like delighted because it, it doesn't have to stop and rest somewhere, or like kind of find something to latch on. There's plenty, plenty for you to feast your eyes on. Um, I wonder how that might connect. Um, you said you do psychometry, I think is what the word is. Mm, yes. So I wonder, I wonder, do you, do you sometimes like with that field of work, you get to look at the environment and the space someone may be in and start to determine the direct effects generally we're, we're mostly unaware of those effects. We need someone to research it like, like you, um, but are there other things that you've noted um, if you could compare and contrast like a, a downtown business center that was all kind of built up in the last 40 years versus the, like a, like a Gothic quarter in an old like Spanish city, are, are, are there things you could kind of like weigh in on regarding that? 
London is a really good example of a city that just takes a bit of everything. Um, you see, have all of the old, uh, all the old buildings, and just wherever there's space, it doesn't matter what they have to do. They will accommodate new buildings um, that are all glass and metal, as, as you've, you've highlighted. Um, and then you'll it's, you'll see these incredibly old buildings that then sort of burst out a skyscraper from the ceiling. Um, and it's, you know, it's impressive in some sense, but there is, it, it, the contrast is impressive, but it also does feel sterile and it does feel like there is almost a, uh, less of a relationship between you and the buildings that you're looking at. Um, and I'm almost, I feel like there's a, there's a sense in which the, 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 there's, a, there's a change in the way in which you identify with the, the environment around you, um, which is similar to the way in which the internet has taken over some of the, um, some of the roles that the, uh, Colombian uh, exhibition did. Um, I don't know if that uh, is a bit of a stretch, but does that feel like it makes sense to you? Yeah, definitely. Um, the word identity, I think, is is a great one. Um, I actually came across a quote while writing a blog, and um, it was from Louis Sullivan, who, if you're into architecture, and maybe in the U.S. you might know of him, otherwise you also might not. But he was a great architect, sort of like the people may call him like the father of the skyscraper. Um, that wouldn't be the big glass tower, like the shard or something like that. But um, things that are more ten story and they're very you know ornate and have a lot of terracotta on it. But he said nineteenth century um, skyscraper, exactly. Um, and he he's um, who Frank Lloyd Wright really learned from. Uh, but he, he has a quote that says, the building's identity resided in the ornament. And I hadn't seen that quote ever till I guess, like two to three months ago. Um, and, and if you think of um, the term facade, right, the, that means the face of the building. That's the thing you see as you're going by. Um, so <laughs> I think in, in some simplistic sense, even just like linguistically, like, buildings we're making now are almost like these big blank faces. Um, and it'd be pretty disturbing, disturbing if you're, you know, going along and you assume all people have two eyes and one nose and one mouth, like on the whole, but you see someone that's got like eight eyes all of a sudden and no mouth, like that'd be really jarring. And I think in some, you know, low, lower level capacity that that's maybe happening for people and they're not necessarily understanding it's happening, but when they're walking through these very disconnected and incoherent, like assemblies of buildings and in like a downtown um, London that has a lot of intervention right now with new buildings. I mean, there's, there's a preponderance of incoherence in that kind of setting um, versus let's say you're in Venice. Uh, Everything is, is quite old and it's, a lot of it's falling apart, but a lot of it's been maintained and it's, it's got this coherence. It's almost like a snapshot into a mercantile city from when was it big? I don't know, the 13th century, 14th century. Um, but that, that seems to be something that 
is captured well in an exposition where there's you know some some master planner or architect behind this whole thing so they kind of their hand gets to comb over most of what's going on there's a bit of a theme but there's sort of variety within that um jump in here and say a little bit about something that i think you guys are uh close to and maybe not explicitly making uh this connection but it's something that i've i've gleaned out of what you're talking about and it's it's this being uh you know architecture has been this platform a canvas for visual storytelling right and we've been able to encode uh values into um you know not only the design in very primitive terms but specifically um you know stories into things like um you know murals or even uh, ornament and decoration that you see in particular like focal points of a building and that we don't necessarily do as much on modern uh structures and design right and there might be patterns that are are at play there but not necessarily narrative and storytelling and perhaps the uh, the digital analog to that is that we don't need to occupy our mind physically through space because we're doing that digitally with phones at all times now. So the little stories, the cultural layer to occupy our mind's eye while we uh, navigate through cities is occurring on these devices, right? So uh, that might be where things have transitioned to. And I'm not saying that that's right. uh, And I'm not saying that it is, you know, not valuable, but it does perhaps reflect that change too. And that we have this media that has become more ephemeral. So we don't, and it's constant. So we don't necessarily choose to embed uh, more longer lasting messages into our physical environment. Kind of reflects the the changing role of the physical environment. The physical environment now exists really to to sustain us uh, while we exist in a digital world. Is that too much of a statement? Is that too far? No. That definitely seems like the trend, and I think that's undeniable. Um, I think I think you made the point well there about the meaning and the stories that would have been written in stone on cathedrals or what have you. Um, I don't know. Victor Hugo has a very long and good passage um, that just talks about the typewriter or sorry, the printing press uh, talks about that. And he talks about how that kind of took the necessity to put stories on buildings in sort of permanent ish format and now you can print them and a lot of people can get them and a lot of people can read them and i guess we've, we've seen that whole gutenberg revolution kind of occur um and and now we're what is what is uh McLuhan's phrase like we're a global village but it seems to be pretty noisy and it seems to be very digital
Yeah, that's fair. You guys still alive? Do I still have you? Yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm thinking. Oh, yeah. No, you're allowed to think. Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, encouraged to. Thank you. It's, <laughs> it's a rarity. <laughs> well, you don't need my permission. Let's see. What else? Where else could we go in terms of um, maybe some of the stuff that you guys saw or that you liked or how would you let's let's bring it uh into the present day as well how would you bring some of these concepts back to the foreground of modern life maybe the um disposable nature of digital media is also uh problematic Let's use that term in the sense that because there is not um, this underlying pool of thematic concepts that are constantly expanded and drawn upon and that we're um, daily or weekly having an onslaught of whatever is moving eyeballs to the platforms uh, that are profiting off of advertising mechanisms predominantly, um, you know, how can we compete against that or maybe return people to a more thorough sense of um, what messages they want to internalize longitudinally, I guess you might think. I think, think that, so the idea of tempor- uh, temporality there is is really interesting because if you look at something like the decoration of a facade, that's, that's quite permanent. You have, and you have these, these cultural touchstones, these uh, references, these you know, memes on a building, but they're memes on a building that exists for decades uh, and centuries in, in, in many cases. Um, and then in the transposition of culture to the digital world, we've essentially said we don't want permanence in, in these cultural we don't want permanent memes uh, we don't want culture to last as long as it has in the past uh, or at least we're willing to put up with the consequence that culture is going to be far more temporary because of the fleeting nature of as you've just said things like the, the, the ads that we watch and so the speed the, the speed with which we reuse images uh, is essentially meant that we are less rooted in a culture or shared culture, um, despite the fact that McLuhan may have said that we are living in a global village. It doesn't certainly feel like we're, we're rooted in the same one. Yeah. Here's an interesting distinction, too. So I just finished this book called Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey, and he is... Um, or at the time that he was writing this book, when he was crafting the story that is the focal point of the book, he was working as a ranger in what was then the national monument known as Arches, which is now a national park in Utah. But some of the distinctions that he makes late into the book are um, the differences between what is civilization and what is culture, right? In that culture is this constantly kind of rotating set of solutions and civilization is, um, you know, always, always 
set with this set of problems that get solved. It, it always has these underlying issues that must be solved to retain civilization, while culture is not interested in retaining itself as much as um, cycling through, you know, whatever's necessary for the set of conditions. And really like, you know, that feeds into a civilization, but it emerges out of a civilization too, in the same hand. Now, in, in that line of thinking, would you say culture more so fits software um, and, and civilization would almost be the, the hardware alongside it? Or does that just not work for that? I think it's fine to superimpose that comparison. Um, you know, I think maybe like civilization is an abstraction too, in the sense that like, you know, what are the necessary aspects of civilization well you know probably housing probably agriculture or at the very least uh sustaining your population through food production or food um acquisition so like is this is is a hunter gatherer um society is that a civilization well i guess if like it is, is able to sustain itself for a very long period of time then perhaps it is they have structures um they have culture that emerges outside of of uh you know the way let me say they have culture that emerges alongside the way that they exist right um and not necessarily every single hunter gatherer society has the same culture but that doesn't necessarily mean that hunter gatherer society isn't a doesn't have root civilization themes right that they're that they're always looking to um engage with you know regardless of where on the earth they find themselves Right. And, and they're, um, they're less prone, a hunter gatherer society is far less prone to leave a high degree of like artifacts or records for us to really even dig into. So there's a, like an archeology span problem there too, just trying to piece them into each other. But I guess you would definitely have to say there's some civilization in both and maybe it's different degrees. Um, I was thinking back about, um, we were talking about how temporary and, and how things change quickly in a lot of ways now, let's say compared to the past. And I've got my own personal bias that I want to see like beautiful buildings. But if I sort of pull that away for a second, maybe that isn't the best allocation of resources for a society. Um, I mean, I love memes and they're whimsical and they're here one day and then they're gone two weeks from then and you don't care who the author is you just want to see them and you want to laugh but on the back side when you inspect that it's like even though they're memes that we're talking about you could think of them a little more seriously if, if there's more ideas put out more variety we should be able to select for better things as we move forward just a higher rate of throughput of new things should you know create progress in a way that keeping stagnant would not or, or, or trying to return in some way to like tradition only um, there, there's there's definitely faults in that mindset um and and I don't, I don't know i don't know what the happy medium would be um 
I think the interesting thing is, and it ties into some some stuff that I think I know you're working on. I don't know if you want to talk more about it, but like, are there ways we can make these like digital expositions and have them be in like a place and maybe they evoke the past or maybe they inspire the future. Um, but maybe that's a better way to allocate resources in a world where there is an internet. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe I've kind of gotten caught up in the romanticism of beautiful cathedrals and other things along those lines. If I can just pick up on something that you said at the very beginning of that, it was about the wastefulness almost, or whether it was worth it or a waste of resources to kind of spend a lot of time uh, in the, on the ornate. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, so please correct me if I'm, I'm going way off mark. But it seems to me that there's something, something there about the distinction between sort of civilization uh, and a civilization that sort of decorates its buildings and one doesn't, and one that doesn't. Uh, and it's that it it sees it as worthwhile to engage in that kind of behavior, to decorate, to, um, to record its values, its purposes, uh, its history, and to record them everywhere it can. And it, and, and the, it might be too, too much to say, but it seems like almost that would be almost a defining feature of civilization to say that a civilization is the kind of thing that seeks to record its presence uh, in, in that kind of way or sees it as being worthwhile to record. Um, but, but for what reason perhaps we could get into later? I don't know. Is that, does that jibe with what you were saying or does that completely contrast no I think that helped clarify some of what I was thinking um, kind, of, kind of made me think of the whole uh, Ozymandias thing too um, you know what you think might be worthwhile in the moment you know time, time wins all battles uh, so it's almost it, it is an interesting thing we, we humans sort of are caught up in like leaving a mark something that lasts longer than, than any one, single one of us would uh, I don't think that makes it fruitless or, or not worthwhile. Um, but it, it, it's something that any given person could never really judge things uh, that will happen in the future that when they're not here. Um, but I mean, I know just anecdotally, I, I've really enjoyed being somewhere, uh, being from the U.S. You know, oldest stuff in the U.S. is not really all that old. Um, I haven't been to really ancient places, but you know, I've been in Rome and walking around, I get a lot of happiness to see like some sort of like manhole cover with SPQR on it. I'm like, wow, that is from so far back. Like I saw it, stuff like that in a textbook, but I didn't see it. Like I didn't touch it. I didn't like drink water out of a water fountain from the Romans. And then when you go there, you actually can do that. Um, and it's a very strange moment where you're almost actually having dialogue with something that's calcified and crystallized and, and it's a memory that's still here in physical space. Um, I, I really appreciate that experience. Um, I don't think we're, you know, if we could fast forward 500 years and look at New York city, I don't think it's going to just be gone. Um, but maybe there aren't 
the same hand felt touches with uh, I, I don't even know what the manhole covers would say in New York City or if I would care about that in 500 years when I'm walking around um, but I, I, I don't know it's, it's hard to it's hard to weigh in on some of these questions that are generally quite big and extend beyond us we're gonna try there <laughs> yeah you know that's what we're tasked with I think is not only to uh, make the attempt but also to ponder the approach. I'm curious about this. So the civilization culture distinction, um, and it comes up in the sort of the de- trying to define, or at least the, the observation that Rome's manhole covers a sort of still Roman in, in the very, in the truest sense of the word. Um, I wonder, would you still say that sort of it's a Roman civilization or it's still part of that same civilization or is it a different civilization? Well, yeah, like if, if you ask someone that lives in Rome, are they going to say they're Roman or are they going to say they're Italian? Well, that's a, another layer, right? You can, you could be simultaneously both of those things perhaps. Well, and we do, we, in the U S we get a lot of that generally not, um, as clear cut. Um, but at this point, I mean, I kind of know where my dad's side and my mom's side, I kind of know the general whereabouts they came from, but I don't necessarily consider myself, my, my heritage is, it's known, but it's not that there's a ton of transition, uh, traditions that came over. Um, so in some ways I feel American, mostly American. And then sometimes like, I guess, you know, in some ways I'm Irish or in some ways I'm Italian, but, but I'm I'm not that much of any of those things. I'm I'm just kind of someone that was born in the U (laughs) S. Yeah. That might be a distinctly modern thing, right? Where your nationality is not necessarily, um, it doesn't necessarily have a lot of overlap with your heritage or your ethnicity. And like, there are obviously groups here in, in the U S that do retain those things, but there are lots that got left behind, uh, willfully even in a lot of cases or, uh, as a result of, um, you know, prejudice in, in other cases. So, I think that if you want to reconnect with those things, it really is up to you to to go and make those connections and and keep whatever sense of the traditions that you um you know you see inside of yourself or that you know you enjoy fundamentally like if 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 that's the thing like you want to participate in any given components like you cook, you know, you cook a lot. Is Italian food, uh, you know, worth taking a deep dive into for you? Well, maybe for lots of people it is, um, but there might even be some more uh, underlying symbolic themes to dial into beyond just the food aspect. Um, And 
you know, that could be a psychometric thing as well as a cultural thing. And it, and, and in that sense, maybe it is keeping a civilization alive. Here's, here's an interesting thing that I kind of point out regularly. Like when we think about Italian food today, and this is very specific, um, when we think about Italian food today, we think about, uh, pastas with, to me, right. Pastas with a tomato sauce, but neither of those two things existed in ancient Rome, uh, in terms of availability for them. We don't talk about, um, you know, spaghetti and circuses. We talk about bread and circus. So they had neither, uh, tomatoes or noodles in ancient Rome. And yet, you know, they're on the Italian peninsula. We now have Italian people there. We have Italian cuisine, but it is a new cultural layer over, over top of what was a, uh, a the Roman uh, geography in the past. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We don't think of the big... Uh the big pottery in the vats they would use to make their, I can't remember the name. Uh, it's a fish soupy paste thing. No idea what the name is for that, but I've, I've maybe it's like garum, garum. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I know what um, you're talking about. And like, God, just, just thinking about that does not do my stomach any favors, but clearly it, it probably was something that was very um, important and significant for them that they could find fish and, and make them into this thing that really worked for them. The taste of it, I have no idea what it is, but it seems like it would be disgusting to me. And I, I have no idea. And there it's were like lost types, in the I past. Think. I think that they had different grades of that, that they made from different types of fish or through modifications of the process too. So it wasn't a one size fits all kind of scenario. There were uh, um, there were discerning. I'm I'm pretty sure that there were like discerning sort of uh, uh, quality levels that you would want a yeah. So so Caesar would get one kind, or maybe none of them ever, um, and the gladiators might get another. Um, something that that came to mind as we're talking about culture. I wonder if in some ways the way we think of the past and some of these really decorative or innate physical features um, of our built environment, um, I wonder how much right now we don't necessarily get led by art and artists as a culture. Um, although you could argue against that and say that entertainment arts, um, movies, those sorts of things really are, I mean, there's probably more money spent on a Marvel movie today than there was, you know, resources spent on like the pyramids. But when you mentioned uh, Theodore Roosevelt earlier, uh, one of my favorite little like stories related to the national parks is that the Hudson Valley painters painted all these great landscapes of the U.S. and people didn't travel across the U.S. to see all those landscapes, but they could see those paintings. And that was up in the White House, and Roosevelt went past it so many times, seeing these beautiful sites that he decided we needed a national park system. And that's, you know, that's art directing the world. Um, you know, life imitates art kind of stuff. Um, and I, I, wonder, I wonder if we should just be mad at the artists 
you know, are they the ones leading us astray? Should they stop making iPhones and apps? Uh, should they should they make things that inspire our, our like very uh, good, like our, our better angels, so to speak? Um, just a thought. It would it would suggest that it is really the values of the the creators that drive things, and it would be interesting to. I mean, this is this may have been done to death, but to look at the relationship between sort of the, the values of an individual creator or artist or designer and look at how those values translate into the physical or at least an aesthetic realm. You know, what is it what is it what does it mean to value one thing over another and how does that how does that come across in art? I think a it's probably something of a cliche to sort of look at the fascists, for example, and look at their um, you know, Muslim, the Milan train station is a fantastic example of this. Um, you know, examples of strength and the persistence of of of, of, of the, the man man made buildings throughout time, um, and that's really an expression of, of of the values of those people. So, what what are the values that are being um, propagated now or recorded now? Are there any? In a in a cynical sense, you could say shareholder value. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't. I don't think that's completely true. I don't um, think it's completely false either, though. Right. You know, it, um, it's and, not and, 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 a, an art platform. Is that a is that a canvas for thematic expression? And you could say that it is. It, it definitely collects a lot of uh, bright and and sometimes creative minds. They're, they are drawn to it. Um, more so for the monetary value, but a lot of people will, will start in a finance position. And 12 years later, they're, they're in something that fits maybe their interests and passion a little better, and they're there with maybe a bigger sum of money than they could have collected elsewhere. Um, I don't know on net how that weighs out. Um, I can speak about the, the connection between you know when a fascist builds a certain way, uh, people react and don't like that way anymore. Um, really recently, or probably five years ago now, because Trump is not president, uh, he, he wanted to kind of mandate that new federal buildings for the United States took a neoclassical look, which is more or less, let's say, you know, looks more like a Greek or Roman building. Um, but a lot of people in the architecture community, first of all, they, they didn't like him as a person. But they associate that kind of building with the Nazi regime. Um, I mean, that that was the, in many ways, that, that's how uh, Hitler built his buildings, and it did kind of express this power. I mean, right now, I guess in our cultural moment, um, we could almost think of of Russia as a very, very like pure Russian aesthetic. Um, and when we think of that, I bet a lot of us depending on our particular backgrounds and heritage, but our, our, our Western folks are probably going to be like, well, it looks great, I think, but it, there's something off-putting about this to me. Um, we all probably think like the onion domes um, and like the, the really ritzy subway stations. Um, and we, we kind of put a value on that now. We say because of the people behind that, or at least the people in power behind that, how they relate to us, we we now don't like that. 
we attach the maker to the, the thing that's made. It becomes contaminated or tainted by association. And that's a thing too with specifically, I would say like maybe the Mussolini regime, right? In Italy where he was trying to, to adopt this posture, right? That harkened back to Rome and it was, it was superficial, you know, it, there was nothing about him being a dictator um, or the fascist style of government that drives home like classic Rome to modern Italian people. It was just him basically taking some memes and putting them out there and just kind of pumping them into the populace for a number of years. And I think that like when you have people that are frantic for one reason or another, um, you know, they are perhaps more likely to jump from one set of ideas to another uh, looking for some solution, you know, uh, at, at the cultural level that seems to insist that it will retain civilization at the human levels. Right. Um, and obviously we know that that didn't necessarily play out the way he wanted. Right. Suggested that he wanted. When you go back a little further in time, you could almost see that that pendulum was on the opposite end the U.S. Capitol building is made to look like it's Roman because we we attach this very like positive value to the Roman world, which is probably historically inaccurate, unless you were a Roman and the right kind of Roman. You probably didn't like the Romans back then. Um, but we, we, we use these stories and we tell ourselves stories, and as long as they're kind of lining up the way we want, it, it does provide us with well-being. Um, but it seems like this process of inversion has happened to, uh, buildings, especially, uh, in relation to World War II, the, um, the things we built to make our, our capital look how it is, you know, that is now tainted. Um, and maybe it'll flip back again someday, who knows, or maybe there's a new thing for us to start to you know, search out and explore in terms of the, the patterns that give meaning to objects and, and spaces that we inhabit. And, and there's other things too, you know, sometimes it's just an event that changes the space. Uh, you know, we don't think of Tiananmen Square the way we did before Tiananmen Square happened. Um, but that event is completely, uh, you can't disentangle it from that place. I kind of have to, I'm thinking about your comments about us sort of reaching out and exploring new new concepts and designs. I can't help but, but see both both Mussolini and, and sort of the, the Capitol building in, in, in the US being examples of that. And people, people reaching for stories that they can almost base a new civilization on, um, which would then kind of support this this idea that's coming up that you know civilization is or yeah, maybe a civilization is based on a a myth we kind of have to look for those myths and re- recombine them in ways that work for us in in the world we live and if we're lucky you know if we happen to be on if we, we happen to have bought a winner uh then perhaps 
our story, our myth will end up being the civilizational one, uh, as opposed to you know Mussolini who didn't didn't work out. Um, so let's say this: What if you have the ability to encode not only the positive aspects of culture right into your civilization, but also the folly right? Isn't it important to remember when? individuals or groups of people kind of went astray utilizing these concepts. That doesn't mean that, um, not concepts, but these, these collections of imagery or, um, cultural capital in a, in a way that they have applied this stuff, uh, improperly or with devastating effect. And that we should remember that, uh, right alongside the more idealist, positive idealistic um, versions as well. I think like it's not good to get rid of uh, or try to like whitewash or sweep under the rug these uh, scenarios where things went wrong, right? And then, um, you know, that's just kind of my opinion on on that. But then the other thing that you guys were talking about too, in terms of is there a new uh, way of illustrating these things. I think Art Deco did that. I know Mike and I have talked a bit about that in the past that where Art Deco is kind of that bridge between the classical aesthetic and the modern materials. And it's why I like Art Deco is because it hasn't morphed into um, these very foreign sort of uh, shapes in terms of architecture. I don't mean foreign in terms of like uh, geography or anything. I just mean that like we have now, um, you know, uh, very brutalist designs. We have, um, very, uh, minimalist designs and we have these other kind of very grotesque designs. And that's not even to say that I dislike all of these things. Uh, in some cases I can look at a building that is just very asymmetrical and not necessarily, uh, aesthetically pleasing and say, I am still pleased to look at this building today right now and to have seen it and witnessed it. Now, do I want to always, or would I like for all buildings to be this way? Uh, almost certainly not, but that's okay. Cause I still took in maybe some aspect of what was going on there. You can find a good angle on these things, you know, just as with people, like they're not always every single angle on a person is not the one that you want to interface with just as perhaps uh, any given building. You could find ugly angles on classically designed buildings too. So you have to kind of uh, bringing this back around to my point before you do have to kind of take these good and bad things uh, hand in hand. And the thing too is like with artists, we romanticize their great achievements and don't necessarily do the deep dives on the 10,000 sketches that they made along the way to, to turning out their masterpiece, you know? So perhaps like we're just giving too big of a platform to some of these um, designs that should have been sketches, but that's okay. Uh, we've got lots of buildings to build. We're going to, we're going to make a lot more. And if we have some other major aesthetic home run akin to art deco or uh, as, as mimetically continuous as classical architecture, which, you know, has permeated the West for millennia now. So that um, I think is, it obviates its staying power. Right. 
Um, I'm happy to hear what you guys think about any of those things or to go off somewhere else. I, I like that you brought up our deco specifically. Um, I think anyone, whether they're trained in art or not, they can look at something that's an art deco building room, whatever. Um, they recognize it as a style, but they'll probably also understand that it has this, this hand drawn quality to it. You can almost feel like the pen to paper that happens somewhere by somebody that there was an illustrator, a graphic artist, um, or just, you know, a person doing that thing. Um, we little insight into just, you know, how, how let's say a building gets built or designed today. I mean, it goes through the computer. There's not much by way of hand drawing. And it doesn't mean that a computer doesn't make curves and it can't do curves, but it's a lot better at straight lines. Um, now something that I hope to see, um, sort of filter out, um, and, and occur more rather than in small scale, but, uh, into bigger scales is this, this sort of generative design art. I'm not sure if you've seen too much of it or a little bit of it, but the idea is, you know, you write code that then makes something that's like a visual, uh, graphical, illustrative um, piece. It could be 3D. It could be 2D. I guess it could be 4D, but good luck looking at that. Um, but I can see that people are building their chops in that world it's programmable. Maybe there will be huge benefits to that. You know, you might be able to change a parameter in this script and you can go from your building looking like art deco style to being, I don't know, French Renaissance style. Um, and maybe you can mix the two. Maybe you can make a gradient between the two. Um, I, I, I've worked a little bit in things like that, but it was in school. It wasn't in a professional setting and, and I haven't done much in recent times, but I could see a good amount of that starting to go from, you can make a pretty image like a JPEG to maybe, maybe soon it'll be commonplace that it's, it's a generative design that then gets handed off to some sort of CNC or 3d printing machine. And then that's some piece that could be installed and assembled in the real world. And it's, it's happening at full scale. It's not happening in the screen. It's not happening in the digital realm. It's like the digital is now like bleeding out into the physical. I could see that happening in the next 10 years. If that, if that generative art is sort of, as, as, as you said, specifically like a, uh, an art deco or a French, French Riviera, um, is, is there space for sort of our current identities or any future identities and cultures that we choose to start uh, decorating our, our, our buildings with? I, I would think so. Um, this wouldn't be generative design per se, just from a technical aspect, but um, the, the office I'm at does a lot of movie theaters um, and in particular client we have they really got into for lack of a better term like the tron aesthetic and in the renovations of all these theaters you go in and and there's a shiny like black tile floor and there's just lights galore on all the walls and they're going at diagonals and they're they're color changing and it's it is disorienting but i don't think they would have gone that way if tron wasn't redone recently um (laughs) 
And, and so I would say that new, not only are the new ways of drawing things, uh, new patterns available to us, but since the tool is new, odds are it, it might even lend itself to new patterns better than it does to old patterns. It, it almost, it, um, my mind is drawn immediately to the, to the art deco variations one sees in, I think it's Miami, and then potentially also uh, in South America, where, yeah, please correct me if I'm wrong, the art deco buildings have taken on sort of a local identity. Um, so you see sort of neon lights in Miami, and then you see something of a, uh, a Central American or South American, uh, whether it's Aztec or Incan uh, flavor to the, the buildings there. Um, and it seems like there's, there's, there's at least hope that sort of those old, those old styles could be repurposed with, uh, with uh, current tastes. So here's something I want to touch on too, because Mike had brought up Louis Sullivan and he is notable uh, for a handful of reasons. One attaching to the uh, exposition as well, which has to do with his design for the transportation building. So when we look at that building, you know, in photographs, we immediately recognize that it is vastly different than the other buildings in terms of design. But what you don't necessarily see because, you know, these are black and white images, though you do realize if you've looked at, at enough of them that it is not a white building. And this is known as the white city. But he chose to actually make his building red. And then the main entrance, which you see these kind of like um, it, it's an inset of of half moons, right, of concentric half circles for the main entrance to this building. And that was called the golden doorway. It was done up in gold. And so like you have this massive golden doorway, uh, you have the geometric pattern, uh, you have the, the red striking red set against all the other structures, but it kind of in a way presupposes some of the design aesthetic that you see finally emerge with Art Deco, right? Where there are these geometric repeating patterns, insets into things, uh, reduced ornamentation, but just just as much ornamentation, though perhaps not as uh, dense. And a lot of that ornament, ornamentation was not necessarily pictorial. It was more pattern oriented. You see that a lot with uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, obviously, as well, you know, who was a student of his. And then the other thing that I wanted to touch on too, and and Mike brought this up as well, is bridging between the digital and the the physical, and bringing things from, uh, you know, our mind space into our our actual physical environment, and that's something I think is becoming more and more available to us. It is part of the project that Chicago 1893 is working on, as as we render some of these old buildings as uh, 3D objects that can be manipulated inside of uh, what's called extended reality. So augmented reality or virtual reality, Um, you know, and you guys actually talked very early on about um, something. And I was going to, I was going to mention this then, but it, it perhaps makes the most sense to kind of put it into place here is that there's an event from Apple coming up in the next week and they have, um, 
you know, released some of the promotional media that goes along with it. And because of that, um, that imagery, people assume that they're going to be announcing their augmented reality device or at least their broader augmented reality strategy. And that is really uh, the predominant way in which we bring these digitally designed cultural artifacts into the physical space that we inhabit as uh, flesh and blood human beings. I think that this is much more it, it it is much more human than a virtual reality, which is totally digitally immersive, you know, and, and into as and as far as wearing, you know, a bodysuit that is tracking your arm movement and leg movement and head movement to put them into a digital space. Instead, we want these hardware devices to be, um, you know, interacting with our data to better replicate these digital objects into our shared physical spaces that to me is humanizing right that's where um we're able to retain civilization while still augmenting with and strapping new culture to what we've already got you know and that to me is better than putting blinders on uh or uh, completely shrouding yourself from physical reality to exist within a completely fake world, a completely digital world. There look there looks to be risks there as well though. Well, not not risks, but the, the the seeds of sort of the continual disruption because one can imagine almost an augmented reality device that does all that you've described, but then also allows people to almost customize the appearance of the buildings and the environment around them such that they're experiencing very different physical environments and we're all experiencing physical environments that are almost catered to us so we can have a facade that has been changed to look a bit more art deco because maybe we like art deco. Um, and that way we, we, we're, we're kind of splintering ourselves even more by, by uh, choosing to perceive the world in a way that is... Uh, appealing just to us and, and not to not to everyone else perhaps but then you know every man is an island in that same sense where you could just live entirely into a fantasy world uh are you going to want to well i don't know you know there's no way for me to really stop people from doing that um you know i can i can proselytize about it and and uh you know try and convince people that these things are bad or i can create content layers that are attractive to people and that they want to adopt and that give them an enriched sense of these spaces that they're able to um, experience and also uh, share and have dialogues about much as we've done today. I think the, um, part you were harping on about bridging digital um, digital and physical worlds um, it makes me think that maybe I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, I suppose it's an essay um, by Walter Benjamin which I think if you're intellectual you say like Walter Benjamin I don't, I don't know how to do French um, but his essay was about art in the age of mechanical reproduction, um, sort of like 
the lost handmade personal quality um, that comes about when things can just get recreated um, a lot of times without loss and fidelity. Um, you know, maybe bridging the digital and the physical, there's, there's probably something easier when you're working in something that's iterative and digital than iterative and physical. There's, there's lower, um, there's lower cost to doing a drawing with your pencil, uh, your Apple pencil than there is to going out and getting your pastels and the right watercolor paper and getting your easel set up just right. I mean, you can just get to it. Um, and I, I do know, though I'm not experienced with these, that some of the algorithms and other pieces of code that are used to generate art, um, many of them are evolutionary algorithms. And so it's a, some sort of loop that is running um, and it runs iterations. And through those iterations, you get to select for certain parameters. Um, so let's say if you start with something and you run it a hundred times and then you start with the same thing and you run it 10,000 times, you're going to get a pretty big variety in the output from the one that went a hundred and the one that went 10,000. And so maybe we can start to find this um, difference in repetition within the digital world and also have the means to produce and, and sort of pull it in to our physical space. Uh, and maybe we'll find a lot of interesting stuff in that in that world. Well, do you guys have any last thoughts? We've been going for about an hour. I don't want to keep you too much longer. And um, in general, I think we've we've at least explored what we set out to loosely. I know there's a lot more territory to mine, and maybe we'll do this again. Yeah, this has been um, it's been really interesting. I've um, I've learned a lot more from speaking to two uh, well, an architect and an architect enthusiast than I expected on a on a Monday evening. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm very um, personally sort of caught up on the, the civilizational expression part, um, the relationship between our values and the physical world, and then I guess. Uh, just touching on what you were just saying, uh, Michael, the um, um, the repetition and the, the the repetition seems to almost speed up our ability to identify our values, uh, see things which are consistent with with the worlds that we want to live in. Um, I wonder if you can almost portray technology as a as a as a savior in that regard, uh, which is not, not something that it gets uh, called often. Yeah. It would help you to dial in, right? Mm. Yeah. Not to open things up too much at this point, but um, you, you could kind of look back and, and think of religious institutions as being more or less operating systems uh, that were, there weren't a lot to choose from. Um, that because they dominated the world and that that created a lot of shared values across large kind of populations of people. I think the U.S. is a really good example of almost just moving completely in the other direction, focusing on the individual, letting the individual determine a lot of their values, and then we kind of 
hope for the best and smash it all together at the end. Um, and that's definitely a philosophical question. Um, I think in, t- in our times right now, we're seeing this sort of perversion where people are always saying, trust the science and, and science is formed as almost this religious fixation. Um, but at the end of the day, we all have to ask ourselves, what are our, our values? We have to reevaluate those values over time. They might not work when we're 40. Uh, if, if, if at 20, we thought we had it all figured out, I'm, I'm going to hope that most people change their minds on something between 20 and 40 or 20 and 30 or 20 and 21. Um, so I guess, I guess that has to say we all should just enjoy the mess. <laughs> So here's one last yeah, thing that I would fun. prompt you with you guys before we wrap this all up and we don't maybe necessarily need an answer today because I know that it is, um, something that might emerge to you over time. If I could infuse a set of concepts or ideas or themes into the Chicago 1893 augmented reality experience or extended reality experiences, what would those things be? You know, obviously classical architecture is going to be at the forefront of this, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I can't create narrative and attach it here as well. And obviously, you know, I have this book, I have this documentary, uh, there is plenty of editorial, but maybe there's uh, a, another session that we do where we kind of pick apart what is expressed there, the specifics, and look at lifting those things uh, and preparing them for this, um, for this feature, for this component of, of the project so that it is... It's continuously endorsing these ideas and bringing them to the forefront. Say there, there might be uh, a guided or a, a tour guide, a digital tour guide inside of this space who gives, um, you know, additional insight or is a voiced character that walks you along the path to see these buildings and kind of illustrates and points out particular things. That to me would be fantastic. I would appreciate it from you guys specifically, which is why we jumped in here to talk, but you know, it's not necessarily on, uh, it's not on my list of things that I'm going to be doing this month, but, uh, you know, perhaps before too long, it's something that I would like to try and tackle. So I'd, I'd be happy to, to source feedback on that from you guys. I would say, yes, that sounds fair. Like that sounds exciting. Like it brings, I like buildings way more than most people. Um, and I, I'm fine with them and just looking at them alone in like a static environment, like no people. But I think, I think for almost all people, it's, it's always about, you know, who's there? Like what, what are they wearing? How do they walk? Like all of those elements are really important in terms of bringing spaces alive. Um, so I, I think that that is a great idea that should be pursued. I'd echo all of that and just add, uh, not just the, what they're wearing and, and, and all of that, but what, why those choices and how those choices are still around us today and what, what relevance it has to us right now. Like how is, how is that exhibition part of our story now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, those are, those are the things that I kind of bookend the book and documentary with are, are my ideas about, you know, how that event was the beginning of the 20th century, uh, how having a, a massive project of that scale is, is good for the people within a society for them to focus on and work towards communally. And then I think that towards the very end of the documentary, at the least, I illustrate some of the foods that still exist today on the, the shelf of grocery stores that you can buy and eat that were either made available for or at the exposition that people 130 years ago were eating and, and drinking that is still available. And that is, you know, that's very mimetically continuous at any rate, guys, I do appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, and I thank you very much. Thank you. It's been, uh, it's been fun. Yep. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Hopefully my audio wasn't too poor. No, no, you were good. Once we got you indoors, uh, everything panned out.